Sunday school lessons uh, too much when I have to preach for sure, and that's bad on me, I guess. But Laverne does such a good job, I, I just feel like he can handle it, you know. And I, I was going to talk about Hezekiah this morning. I, that's exactly where I was going to go. And uh, I couldn't believe it when I opened the Sunday school book on the way to church. I just couldn't believe it. I was like, you've got to be making this up. This is, this is exactly where I was going to head this morning. So I sat on that bench all morning wondering if I should talk about Hezekiah or go somewhere else. Ellis has given me an affirmation, so I'm going to go with that. I had honestly thought about um, yesterday. I was, I was mulling about what I was going to talk about, and there was, there's a verse that, in Hosea that I really like, and I thought about changing directions yesterday at the last minute, and then I decided not to. Um, and, and I don't know whether that's human reasoning or the leading of the Lord. I'm really confused right now. But uh, anyway, I guess we're going to go with Hezekiah, and we're going to talk about him and what little thunder there's left we'll, we'll try to deliver. And, and um, I don't know how much of Hezekiah everybody can take here, but we're going we're gonna to see. So you may turn to Second Chronicles and chapter 29. Um, I was interested. My mind went the same direction as Curtis's. Um, you know, as I was thinking of this week of meetings coming up and, and revival and what that all means, um, often we think of revival as being exactly that. You know, this week of meetings where there's um, um, uh, maybe in some circles anyway, there would, it would be somewhat of a fiery week or whatever. I mean, it. That's kind of what comes to mind, and I think it has a lot to do with the, Meth- the Wesleyan Methodist revival movement back in the day and the way that sort of went. But um, really, the root of revival is to bring something that is somewhat lifeless back to life, to give life to something that doesn't have much there. And so I don't know how you, how you look at a, at a week of revivals, whether you see that as something that is life-giving. Hopefully that's the way it works out. I will admit that on a personal note, um, a week of church every night ends up being fairly grueling. I I find it that way. I mean, you know, it's just, it it can be taxing. And, um, you know, you you, you don't really want it to be that way, but that's just kind of the way it ends up. So, um, anyway, um, I guess I'd like to encourage us all this week to... um, do what we can to make this a highlight rather than a grueling session. Um, that's a terrible word, isn't it? But it can kind of end up being physically taxing, I guess is what I should say. I also had to think of this, you know, is, is a week of revivals, um, I had to think about how that all got started back in the day. Um, you know, Mennonites, there was, it was quite a little hullabaloo back in the day in the late 1800s when these, when these things, Sunday school revival meetings, that type of thing was coming along, and there was some that wanted to do these things, some that didn't want to do these things. And I guess as I see it, there was probably good, good thoughts on both sides of that coin, and I'm not going to go into that too much. But it, it, was, it, it was something they grappled with. And I, I found it interesting, and in, I've been reading a lot of history here lately this summer, and there was, one, there was one particular older brother in the area that I grew up in that he, he was opposed. He was po- opposed to anything that he called night preaching. 
He just didn't like night preaching. And he, he wrote a letter to a, to a, um, a bishop in another conference, and he told him, he said, I, I hate this night preaching, he said. So I don't know whether it was something to do with just the nighttime and the preaching that didn't mix in his mind or what that was, but I, it just interested me that that's the way he put it. It's also interesting to me that, you know, often we think of revivals, we think of, at least my mind goes to the uh, very famous Brunk revivals back in the 50s and 60s. But there's one thing that I would point out there that has been a mystery to me. I have some thoughts on it, but it is still somewhat of a mystery. We kind of think <clears throat> of the Brunk revivals as being somewhat of a highlight when it comes to Mennonite revival. And there was lots of good things happened, lots of, lots of um, spiritual fires that were ignited in people's hearts during those times. And there was times that Brunk would set up for five weeks, and he'd go at it for five weeks. And uh, I don't know, that, it is what it is, but that, that just sort of, um, sort of it's, it's interesting to me that they, they could turn out a crowd for that long of a time. But anyway, I remember uh, there was one account that there was, a, there was a congregation in the Franconia Conference that after Brunk went through with his revivals, for a solid month after that, they had no preaching at their church on Sunday morning. Every Sunday morning for one solid month, four weeks, was nothing but testimony meeting every Sunday morning. They were that revived, I guess you, should, you could say. But what is also interesting to me, that was in the early 50s, and by 1965, largely that conference was, on, was skidding down hill at such a rapid pace that there was really no bringing godliness back to it. Now, how that can happen that in 15 years you can have such an about face is somewhat of a mystery to me. I guess I would just say this. Was it really truly a revival or was it just an emotional hullabaloo? There is a difference. There's one thing to have a big puff, a big flame, and it's another thing to have a fire that burns and burns and burns. So I don't, I don't mean to pass judgment. What I, what I would like to see happen this week in my life and hopefully in yours as well, thank you, is that we could, we could have a revival that would burn and that would last and that would be enduring and not just a big burst of a flame that dies away. And Hosea, the prophet Hosea, and this is the verse that I, I mentioned earlier, he has this verse um, that he says to the northern tribes there in Israel, he says, Sow to yourselves in righteousness, reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till he come and rain righteousness upon you. Now when it comes to fallow ground, if you talk to Alice very long, you'll find out that in Montana they fallow purposely. They do this, and it's a good thing. But if you would fallow year after year after year, I suspect that even in Montana, after a while, you'd have undesirable ground. Because it ends up sprouting things that you don't want there. Undesirable things. And I well remember as a boy clearing about 20 acres of fallow ground that had been fallowed way too long. And it started having trees that size and all kinds of bushes and briars and, and all that. What God is saying here through the prophet is, if we look closely enough, we can probably find fallow ground in every one of our lives. 
ground that needs to be turned, ground that needs to be restored to productivity. Nothing can sit fallow forever. It's time to seek the Lord. The uh, old wise Solomon said there's a time for everything, and there's a time for this and a time for that. You remember that. Here the prophet says there is a time to seek the Lord. And so that is, that is what I would like to see happen in my life this week, a serious time of seeking God. All right, so let's go to um, Hezekiah here, and let's chew some of the stuff over again and maybe bring a few new thoughts out as we go. It was emphasized, um, Laverne talked about the um, ancestry of Hezekiah, Hezekiah's father was no great spiritual asset to Hezekiah at all. From what I can tell, he was, um, he was not at all. Um, his, his grandfather, Jotham, um, seemed to have a, a bit of a tepid righteousness anyway. And uh, let's see, his, I think it was his great-grandfather in 26, 1 to 5, one of his... Um, Uh, let's see, no, I'm wrong on that. Maybe it was back a chapter here. One of them, it said that, um, yeah, well, not that one either. So I'm not sure where the verse is, and it talks about the person did, a, um, did what was right, but not with a perfect heart, it puts it that way. One of his relatives, one of his ancestors said that he, he did what was right, but not with a perfect heart. 27-2, okay. His grandfather, okay. All right, thanks. All right. Yeah. So, uh, so anyway, there you go. There you have it. So, there was kind of a tepid, lukewarm um, um, background to Hezekiah coming along. But it made me wonder how much the prophet Isaiah had to do with Hezekiah's Revival. Um, Hezek, if I understand it right, Isaiah would have prophesied during the reign of a good many of um, Hezekiah's father, grandfather, great-grandfather. And it seems like there was not great response till we get to Hezekiah. And then there seems to be a response. I think that harks back to Ezekiel 18. If you would read through that chapter, it talks about God works with a person, one person at a time. So if your father is bad, doesn't necessarily mean you have to be. And if you're good, doesn't necessarily say that your son is going to follow in your footsteps. It's each person according as he makes that decision. All right. So let's just look at a few points here. So, again, I want to just emphasize, as already was here this morning, that following and seeking God was Hezekiah's first order of business. I can imagine that taking a throne, as he did, um, at age 25, uh, pretty full of energy, lots of things he could have done, lots of things he could have put his energy into. But the first thing he did, as we well talked about, was he repaired this temple. He got right at it. First month of the first year. Psalm 63.1, it says, O God, thou art my God, early will I seek thee. And in Ecclesiastes 12.1, it says, Remember your Creator in the days of your youth. Where is God in our lives? Is He front and center 
Is he there? Kind of the first thing we think of when we get up and the last thing we think of when we go to bed. Is that where he's at with us? You know, important things always need to be prioritized, it seems. And um, personally in my life, and I'm assuming I'm, you can relate to this, but I have a hard time separating the important from the pressing. There's things that are pressing that need to be done, and then there's important things too, and sometimes they're not the same thing. It seems like Hezekiah did that. He was able to separate the pressing from the important. And it seemed like he realized that if he took these, this important task and he would postpone it, chances are he'd never get to it. Procrastination and ignoring something is seldom a good policy. So for an application this week, I would challenge us. Let's separate the important and the pressing. We are going to have meetings every night this week. How important is that to you? You're going to have work every day this week. I'll let you decide what is important and what is pressing. And then let God help you uh, decipher between the two. But I would, I would really encourage us. Let's, let's try to make attendance to these meetings a priority this week. The other thing I see here, another point, Hezekiah was very wholehearted when it came to God. In um, 29.2, it talks about that he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that David, his father, had done. And we know that David was a person that was a man after God's own heart. So it seems like Hezekiah, it would be safe to say he was a man after God's heart as well. I don't know how well you, or if you have, I'm sure you have, observed half-hearted performance in your life by someone, or maybe you have even performed half-heartedly at some point in your life at, for something. Um, it stands out in my mind, just for an illustration, uh, the carpenters that I usually get to do any carpentry that needs done around my place because of my lack of know-how are very aggressive people. They are wholehearted people. They show up before it's daylight and they leave after it's dark and they hardly quit to eat lunch in between. They are just 100 miles an hour straight ahead. They are wholehearted. As a matter of fact, it almost seems like they're a little too wholehearted, but they are very wholehearted. I'll give it to them. They do their job. They do it well. They, they're just all into it. So when I watch somebody do a project like that, I, I kind of get used to, you know, you know carpenters, they're, 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 they're fast. They're at it, man. They're, they're there. Well, then I had another um, uh, crew do some work for me this year, kind of unrelated, um, but they were something less than wholehearted. Such slacking around and sloughing around and just sort of half-hearted doing this and that. And I told my wife, I don't know, is it just the fact that I'm so used to watching this other crew work just like maniacs that, that when someone works normally, that it looks like half-heartedness to me, or are these guys really just sloughs? I, I don't know, but I do know this. They had to come back and repair the job they did because it wasn't done right. So it kind of confirmed in my mind that they were half-hearted. Anyway, be that as it may, I, I have come to appreciate wholeheartedness. Hezekiah was very wholehearted. I had to think of a few verses that go along with that. The prophet Jeremiah says, 
I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord, and they shall be my God and my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return unto me with their whole heart. So did you catch the connection there? They'll know me when they give me their whole heart. You want to know God this morning? You kind of got to give him your whole heart. This halfway stuff isn't going to cut it. Another verse in Jeremiah. And, they, and ye shall seek me and find me when ye shall search with me with all your heart. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is, he is near. Now, let's look at um, 29, verse 29, verse, sorry, chapter 29, verse 34. Let's read this verse. But the priests were too few. So that they cannot flay all the burnt offerings, wherefore their brethren, the Levites, did help them till the work was ended. And until the other priests had sanctified themselves, for the Levites were more upright in heart to sanctify themselves than the priests. Here we have a perfect example of some wholeheartedness and some half-heartedness. Obviously these priests um, somehow couldn't get their act together to get themselves sanctified, and the Levites could. That stands out to me. What was the deal here? I mean, did the, the Levites just come from a, you know, a family that was just giddy-up-go kind of people, and the, and the priests were something less than that? Was it somewhat of a, of a trait here, a family trait, or what was it? It's interesting to me that if, if a person looks at Old Testament, the priestly line through the Old Testament, you don't come up with very many good examples. I, I, I don't know why that is, but it is that way. And it seems like here again it shows itself. There was an obvious difference to their approach. And um, I would presume probably the blessing was a bit different as well. So how about us? Are we going to be whole, wholehearted? How do we apply this? Well, I would, like to, I would like to just encourage us this week as the Lord speaks to us through Brother Eric, let's listen up. Let's be engaged. Let's, let's hear what the Lord has to say to us through him. You know, if we're exposed to something, um, and the thing could help us, if there's a piece of advice somebody offers us and we just ignore it, how wise is that? If we have a problem, we're sick, we go to the doctor and he says, well, here's your problem, here's what you're going to need to do. Maybe it's um, a lifestyle change, maybe it's taking a medicine, whatever, and we just ignore it. Now, is that wise? Well, we, we get it. That is not wise. But how often do we do the same thing with God's word? We're exposed to something, and we just half-heartedly push it away. Let's not do that this week. Okay, another point here. Hezekiah understood the need for sanctification. I'll just read a couple of verses here. Um, 29, 4, and 5. And he brought the priests and the Levites and gathered them together in the east street and he said unto them, Hear me, ye Levites, sanctify now yourselves and sanctify the house of the Lord God of your fathers and carry forth the filthiness out of this holy place. Revival will just do this. It should do this. It should sanctify us. Sanctification carries this idea of a complete cleaning, not a half-hearted brushing down a few cobwebs that are really obvious, but this is getting down and, and taking care of the filth. Totally house cleaning. You know, if a person would look at 
the whole subject of sanctification in the Old Testament, especially with like different um, feasts and uh, different ceremonies, it was repeated over and over and over. So they'd sanctify themselves, and a year later they'd do it again, and a year later they'd do it again. Is there a lesson here for us? What house stays clean forever? What garage stays clean forever? What whatever stays clean forever? I think there's a continual need for sanctification. And again, we're, we're at that time of the year where we're going to have what we call our revival meetings. Let's use this to sanctify ourselves. John 17, 17, Jesus says, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. We're going to be exposed to the word. We're going to be exposed to the truth. And that should sanctify us. 2 Timothy 2.21, If a man purge himself from these things, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified, and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. God really can't use unsanctified people. It was very important that Hezekiah got the sanctifying done before they could proceed with the other events that took place along the way. All right, so another thing I see here is Hezekiah wanted everyone to enjoy the blessing. And Laverne talked about this in our Sunday school lesson. So not only did he call the people of Judah to to this um, uh, Passover here in chapter 30, but he wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh, and he said, you know, you folks are welcome to come and share in this. I think it should be the same way with us. We shouldn't want to just enjoy God's blessings ourselves. We should want others to share in that as well. In Matthew 10, um, Jesus as he's sending forth the, uh, the disciples, he says, Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils. Freely you have received, freely give. Which of us today can't say that we haven't freely received? It's our obligation to freely give. And I couldn't help but think of Peter and John in Acts 4, whenever they're there before the, um, the elders of, the, uh, of Israel there, and they were commanded not to speak. And they said, we're sorry, but we really can't help it. Uh, we have to speak the things that we have seen and heard. And then there was the man freed of the devil uh, that went into the pigs. And after he was clothed and in his right mind, he begged Jesus. He said, can, can I come and just be your disciple too? And Jesus said, you'd be better served if you'd go home and tell others what God has done for you. So he did that. He published in Decapolis how great things Jesus had done for him, and all men marveled. It is noteworthy, though, that in the text here, in chapter 30, verse 10, it says, And the posts, or the messengers, passed from city to city through the country of Ephraim and Manasseh, even unto Zebulun. In other words, they, they encompassed the whole country of Israel. It says, But they laughed them to scorn, and mocked them. The majority of the people just had a, it was a joke. They weren't going to do it. And there is a, a real parallel, and you know where I'm going with this. People today, many, many people today, will scoff at the message of God. That's not news to you or, or I, but it does not 
um, give us an excuse for not sharing the message. The message still needs to be shared whether or not people open themselves to that or not. All right, let's move on to, to another thing I see here in these chapters. I see a humility and a oneness of heart that came together here as, um, as Hezekiah was um, preparing for his revival or in the midst of his revival, however you want to word it. You know, the people of Israel, the northern kingdom, had been for many, many, many years steeped in some sort of a mixture of idol worship to a greater or lesser degree. You remember Jeroboam as he left when the kingdom was divided. He set up those calves at, at um, Dan and Bethel and he said, here, these are your gods. So there was, this, there was this real lack of real true worship that had been going on for years in the northern kingdom. Now, for these people in the northern kingdom to come down to Jerusalem and celebrate this Passover was going to take some swallowing of pride. It really was. And, the, and I really believe that there probably was a bit of swallowing of pride for the people of Judah to go up and invite these Israelites to come. So both sides, I think, had to humble themselves for this to happen. But it says in verse 12 of chapter 30, also in Judah, the hand of God was to give them one heart to do, to do the commandment of the king and of the princes by the word of the Lord. It doesn't really mention Israel there, but it does mention how that, in verse 11, how the divers from Asher, Manasseh, and Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. It seems to me there's a continuity. There's a, there's a connection here. So as they humbled themselves, they found themselves unified together in one mind. 1 Peter 3.8 says this, Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous. The RSV puts it this way, Finally, all of you have unity of spirit, sympathy, love of the brethren, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Now I see that all coming together here in Hezekiah's invitation to the, to the Israelites. And I, uh, I really appreciate his, his extension of that offer. And I would like to just make the application to us. Let's allow the teaching this week to draw us together. Let's allow it to humble us. Let's allow it to focus on my problems, not your problems. All right. Let's move on to the next one. True revival is a heart that's tuned to God and a God that's given to mercy. And I find that in chapter 30, verses uh, 15 to 20. I can find that. So if, if, if we're not going to read this, but if what you'll find here is that... Um, um, they, just, they ran out of time, basically, to, to sanctify all their people for this Passover. And it says, uh, in verse 18, it tells us why. It says, For a multitude of the people, even many from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, and Zeppelin, had not cleansed themselves, yet did eat the Passover otherwise than it was written. But Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, The good Lord pardon every one that prepareth his heart to seek God, and the Lord God of his fathers though he be not cleansed according to the purification of the sanctuary. And then it says, the Lord hearkened to Hezekiah and healed the people. 
It is, an, it is interesting to me that there were sp specific regulations as far as what sanctification was supposed to be. And obviously God overlooked that. Hezekiah prayed and God overlooked that and said he healed the people. Now if you think back to like David when he was moving that ark and he didn't follow God's directions to the T, there was a man lost his life from that. Here they didn't follow God's directions to the T and it seems like God was good with that. I guess the only difference I can see here is it wasn't that these people didn't want to, there just simply wasn't time. And it seems like Hezekiah realized they were in a predic predicament, so he prayed to God and God said, I'll heal the people. Perhaps in David's case, if there just wouldn't have been a way to transport this ark and it needed to be transported and he would have prayed to God, perhaps things would have turned out differently. Here, it was not a matter of not wanting to. It was simply a matter of not having the time. In Psalms 34, 18, it says, The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. I think it's what you see here. You see the Lord healing people that really had good intentions. They really wanted to do the right thing. So I would just say this. This week, let's allow the Lord to heal us. Let's allow the Lord to work a work in us. Let's prepare our hearts to seek God. And if we do that, I'm sure the Lord will indeed heal us. The other thing I see here is the, the part prayer had to play in this whole thing. What would have happened if, if Hezekiah would have just said, well, there's just not time. You know, let's just let's just forget about it. There's just not time. Let's just do it. And he would have failed to pray. What if the Lord healed if he'd have failed to pray? I'm of the persuasion, probably not. I don't think it would have happened. He prayed and entreated God, and God blessed. You know, prayer is something that we all attest the value of. Which of us wouldn't say prayer is not important? And yet, which of us would not confess that sometimes that's the hardest thing to take the time to do? Because just there's so many other things that are pressing. We just hardly have time to get that squeezed in. If we're squeezing in prayer, that's all we're doing. We're just squeezing it in. You know, getting, getting through it just because we know we should. How much effect will that really have? How much entreating of the Lord do we engage in? Are we lacking healing because we don't really pray well? Is that a possibility? It's interesting to me. Let's turn to Revelation 5.8. This is a very, this is a verse that has intrigued me often. And I would just like to bring, draw your attention to this. Here we have, um, we have a conversation between the elders and John here. And in verse 8, I'm just really breaking in, but the thought is right here. And it says, And when he had taken the book, and the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the land, having, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. I can't read that verse without thinking, what does my vial smell like? 
Does my vial give much odor? Does your vial give much odor? Do you think the sanctuary of God is filled with odors this morning? What do you think? Vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. We're busy people. We hardly have time for stuff, do we? But I believe sometimes it's good to come apart and pray. And I would like to encourage us, this week at 7 o'clock, we can come apart and we can pray. There's going to be prayer at this church every evening at 7 o'clock. What if each one of us would make the commitment that this week at least one night we're going to show up to pray? Do you think the sanctuary of God would smell just a little better this week? I would just encourage us. I know we're busy people. I understand that. I totally get that. But maybe we should do that. Maybe we should commit to at least one night this week that we're going to come and we're going to pray. And we're going to fill God's sanctuary with those odors. All right. Revival in Hezekiah's day brought about radical change. There was a complete annihilation of idolatry. In verse, 30, verse 1 of 31 it says, Now when all this was finished, all Israel that were present, went out to the cities of Judah and break the images and cut them in pieces and threw down the high places. They, they utterly destroyed all these things. And then it says, Then all the children of Israel returned, every man to his possession, into their own city. So before they returned, before they got back to life, they got rid of these idols. In other, in other words, again, we see a priority thing here. And, and Warren brought up in, in Sunday school how that Hezekiah uh, got rid of that brazen image. Um, I wonder how much heat he took for that. i got to believe that that image went back, that, that snake, that uh, golden snake went back, uh, bronze snake I guess it was, went back some years. And after a while things start to get a little bit of souvenir value, not? Um, i got to, I guess just knowing human nature, I want to believe there's probably some resistance to that. But Hezekiah moved through and he got rid of that snake because it was not doing them a bit of good anymore. So the, the destruction of idols is not a new scene in the Old Testament. This happens repeatedly. There's, this, there's these times that the children of Israel will come together, they will destroy the idols, and they will return to God as they should. I couldn't help but think of the verse in 2 Corinthians 10. It says, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Imaginations, reasonings, high things. I see this as barriers to drawing close to God. Can we this week cast down imaginations, and the high things that would be barriers to God, the idolatry that's in our heart, perhaps. Ask ourselves a question. What's in my heart? What's the stronghold in my heart that's keeping me back from a true, healthy, spiritual development? Another thing I see here, another radical change I see in verse uh, 4 of um, chapter 31 it says, Moreover, he commanded the people that dwell in Jerusalem to give portions 
of the priests and the Levites, that they might be encouraged in the law of the Lord. Now drop down to verse 8. It says, And when Hezekiah and the princes came and saw the heaps, they blessed the Lord and his people Israel. Then Hezekiah questioned with the priests and the Levites concerning the heaps. And Azariah, the chief priest of the house of Zadok, answered him and said, Since the people began to bring the offerings into the house of the Lord, we have had enough to eat and have left plenty. For the Lord has blessed his people, and that which is left is this great store. So we, we get this, this picture of Hezekiah commanding, actually a reinstatement of bringing these gifts to the priests and Levites. And we see the people just doing this overwhelming. So much that they had these heaps. And uh, Hezekiah's like, what's these heaps about? And the priest is like, well, you know, people are just bringing like crazy. We have, all, we have all this stuff, more than we even need. I, I'm interested to notice that the reason Hezekiah wanted this to happen is that he wanted the priests and Levites to be encouraged. He wanted them to be encouraged. Could it be that the want, the wantonness, I should say, of the priests many times was the fact that they were not being encouraged of the people? Is there any connection there? It's interesting to me, too, in, in Romans 16, going to the New Testament now, and if you remember, Romans 16 is just this kind of this epilogue that, um, that Paul gives there, and he says, you know, greet this person, say hi to this person, do this to this person. He gives this whole list of people. And there's this one sister by the name of Phoebe, and it says, receive her in the Lord, as become a saints, that ye assist her in whatever business she hath need of. For she has been a succorer of many and of myself also. What a commentary on a person, a succorer. A person that knows how to encourage. So, this week, can we be an encouragement to our spokesman, to Brother Eric, and what other ever way you find fits you? Encourage him. Be an encouragement to him. Then the third thing that I see was a radical change brought about by this revival in verse 23 of chapter 30. It says, And the whole assembly took counsel to keep other seven days, and they kept other seven days with gladness. So they went way out of their... They, they, they celebrated the Passover twice as long as they would have had to. Just, it seemed like the second week was out of August. It was completely voluntary. Completely. They would not have had to done that. And yet they voluntarily did it. I believe revival will do that to us. I believe it will, it will cause us to voluntarily do things over and above what we'd be even expected to. I couldn't help but think of the, of the passage in, in Acts 2 where it talks about the early church, it says they continued daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, and did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. What a wonderful, what a wonderful picture of people that just wanted to do this. This was no burden. This was something they wanted to do. So I would encourage us this week, want to be here. That will help a lot if you want to be here. If you will do this with gladness. 
If you will say along with David, I was glad when they said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord. So what was the, what was the pinnacle of this revival? Let's look at uh, verse 20 and 21 in chapter 31. And thus did Hezekiah through all, throughout all Judah and wrought that which was good and right and truth before the Lord his God. And in every work that he began in the service of the house of God and in the law and in the commandments to seek his God, he did it with all his heart and prospered. The man prospered. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. You want to prosper? Is that where you want to be? There's a way to do that. Keep God number one. Delight in the law of the Lord. Do like Hezekiah and just rot the things that were good. I just love that word rot. Just rot the things that were good. I just get this idea of just somebody just going crazy, doing the stuff that's good. Can't get enough of it. That's what they want to do. And I so love the, uh, in 3 John, the, the very second verse in 3 John. It says, Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as your soul prospers. Now catch that connection. Could, could people say of me, I really wish your health would be as good as your spiritual vitality. That's really where I wish your health would be. Or would they have to look at me and say, I really wish your spiritual vitality would be as good as your physical health. Is there something for us to learn here? I wish that your soul would prosper as your health, or I wish that your health would prosper as your soul. Well, I wish you prosperity. There's no reason we can't prosper spiritually, and I believe that this week can be a, a time of spiritual fertilization so that we can indeed prosper. We have an opportunity this week, fortunately, to delight and bask in God's word. If we will, we'll prosper. If we choose not to, we'll do something other than prosper. May God help us to prosper and be in health.